And we said we'd never do it again, but we do. And we said we'd have these new regimes, but it's pretty likely they've already stopped. And so we asked the question, how? How do you change? How do you change your behaviour? Well, have a look with me at the passage, I think verse 5. I think this is key. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How do you change your behaviour? You change how you think. And when you change how you think, so we change how we live. Right thinking, Paul says to them, leads to right living. And so what's the issue in Philippi? Why does Paul want them to change how they think? Why does he want them to change how they live? Well, it seems to be that there's something going on in church. There's, there's pressure from the outside that's causing division within the church. You see it in a football team when they go two or three or four goals down and their heads drop and you know you've won. You see it on Apprentice as they're there before Sir Alan in the boardroom and they start fighting and squabbling against each other. You see the cracks and the divisions. And so have a look at verse uh, 1 verse 27 to 28 with me and you'll see something of this division. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to you and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. You see, Paul says he wants them to stand firm, to stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one. And why? Because they're being opposed. The pressure from the outside is causing division within. And if you just flick over to chapter 4 as well, we might have a bit of an example of where it's going. So 4 verse 2 to 3, Paul says, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement, and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. It seems that Euodia and Syntyche are fairly kind of um, senior people within the church. Paul has served with them and they've fallen out and so he wants them to be of the same mind. And when we see that, when you see what's going on in the church, you see why Paul writes in this way. He wants them to be united again. He wants them to change how they think so they'll change how they live. So there'll be unity. And we're going to look at two aspects, two points, if you like, from this morning. Uh, There's one verse five, which is the mindset of Morden Road Church. We are to live in humble unity, Paul says to us. And then he says, consider the mindset of Christ, of Jesus. He lived in humble submission. So the mindset of Morden Road Church, we live in humble unity. Verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any sharing with the Spirit, uh, if any tenderness and compassion, then my my joy complete, Paul says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility 
Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now at the start, we must get this right. Paul is, is not saying, okay, to keep God off your back, you've got to be nice to each other. If you live like this, God will be happy with you and it'll all be okay. He's not saying that at all. He's saying because of who you are through Jesus' death and his resurrection, because of what you have received through his death and resurrection, now live differently. So you see it in verse 1, because you are united with Christ. That is, as you trust him, as you have faith in Jesus, so you have died with him. So you have resurrection life with him. So you are cleansed, you're forgiven. You have a righteousness that comes from him. You have a new identity. Because of what you have from him, you have comfort from his love. You have uh, your sharing in the Holy Spirit. You have kindness, tenderness, compassion. Because of who you are and because of what you have. Now go and live like that. Look at how you've been treated by God. Now go and treat others like that. It's one of those massive Christmas uh, chocolate boxes you get. You know, the enormous ones from Thornton's, full of chocolatey goodness. And the Lord says, look at what you have. Now go and share them around. Go and give them to people. Look how much you've been blessed. Now go and give them to other people. Look at all you have from Christ. Look at his kindness. Now the way that we must live as a response to that is humble unity, he says. Humble unity. Philippians, how can you treat each other so badly when you see what the Lord has given you? What the Lord has done for those around you? How can you treat each other like that? It must lead to humble unity. That seems to be the overarching point. You see the unity bit there in verse 2. He says, like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, that's all of you, put your little agendas aside and pull together. And we say, but we want our individuality. That sounds rather constricting. Paul, can't I be me? Can't I be the person you made me to me? I don't want to be a clone like the rest of this lot. He says, that's not the issue. We need diversity in church. It's it's much more about why you're doing what you're doing, what your motives are for how you're living. That's the problem. Verse 3, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In previous versions, you might remember, that was vain glory. That is, wanting to be at the top of the pile. Wanting the power and the prestige. He's saying to us, why do you do what you do? What do you do it for? Do do you want to look good in front of others? Do do you want glory? He says, no, rather than selfish ambition or vain conceit that leads to disunity, we need humility. Humility that always values others above yourselves. That means you look to their needs instead of your own all the time. It would be a great contrast to the culture of their time where humility was seen as something weak. It was a negative word. They had little catchphrases, things like, look after your own things, do good to yourself, 
look for advantage. There was this craving in their time for, for power and prestige and status and rank and title. And Paul says humility. He's not saying we need low self-esteem. Our culture can be very damning of the Christian faith. Because they say, well, it's just the church making a power play over the vulnerable, isn't it? The church trying to control people. No, no, Paul is saying you need to let the needs of others be paramount in your life. Be, be, be a you-first Christian rather than a me-first Christian. Let your knee-jerk reaction be, how can I serve you rather than how can you serve me? It was a contrast to the world then and it's a contrast to our world now, isn't it? Humble unity. What does that look like in church? Just some brief thoughts. Music is an interesting one in churches. I would say not so much at Maldon Road Church, but there are often cracks and battles and schisms over the kind of music we ought to have on a Sunday morning in different churches. It's a caricature. Wouldn't it be amazing for the younger folk to say, we should sing more hymns, because that's what the older folk want. And the older folk say, we should be singing more choruses, because that's what the younger folk want. Each of you, look to the interests of others. Or simply, maybe it's the ministries we put on in general at Maudlam Road Church. We have limited time, resources, money. And it's great that we've got different people with different ideas about how we should use those things. Imagine one ministry leader in the church saying to another, no, you have the photocopier. You use it. You have the building. You use it. You have the budget. You take my notice slot on a Sunday morning. I want your ministry to thrive and to grow. I want to see your ministry flourish. And the other leader saying, no, 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 you go first. You take it. Each of you. Look to the interests of others. Or maybe it's, it's secondary theological emphases. Or maybe it's thoughts about the kind of coffee we should drink on a Sunday. Or maybe it's just how we treat people, particularly the kind of people we don't get on with that well. Each of you, look to the interests of others. Be a a you-first Christian. It's been great to settle into Morgan Road for the last seven months or so, nearly seven months. There are some brilliant, humble, hard-working people here. People who, without grumbling, set up week by week or or serve tea and coffee or or lug PA around or teach our children or clean or cook or whatever it might be. Who sort rotors out. Who play on Excel. They are people who look to the interests of others. They are Philippians 2 verse 4 type people. But, and I want to say this carefully... This is a passage for all of us. And it strikes me that many of them are tired. Many of them are overworked. Paul says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And we say, how? How do we do that? Well, remember again, it's not just looking inward 
of drumming up a bit more humility. I must be more humble. No, Paul says, look at Jesus, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Think like him. Verse 5 bridges the gap, the two halves. The answer to humility, the answer to a, a humble, unified church. Look at Jesus. Look to Christ, the one who lived in humble submission. Second point then, the mindset of Jesus. He lived in humble submission. I have to be honest and say, looking to Jesus every day, seeking to have the same mindset as him, is not something that comes naturally to me. It's a decision I have to make. It's not just something I slip into. It's deliberate. Something I need to choose to do. And notice again, he's not like, we saw it last week, he's not the general a mile behind the front line barking orders at us. He's the one who's there on the front line. The one who goes before. The one who says, come and follow me. Come and, come and think like me. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We're going to split it into three of these verses. We're going to see who he is, verse 6. We'll see what he's done, verse 7 to 8. And then verse 9 to 11, we'll see what the Father's done. So who Jesus is, verse 6. If you like, Paul outlines for us Jesus' status. He tells us who he is, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus is the one person who could be worshipped and adored. The one person in all the world. He could have claimed that. Jesus is God. And yet, because I take it of the very nature of God, he chose not to do that. He did the exact opposite. What do I mean? God, the God of the Bible, is, is at core. He's Trinitarian. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He's dynamic and loving and giving and other-centred. Always other-centred. The Father loves the Son who loves the Spirit. And because Jesus is God, so he serves. He loves. That's what God does. That's what he's always done. Jesus serves his people. He doesn't use his status to his own advantage. He uses it for others. One person said he, he just took the cross and not the crown. And his, his rightly uh, exalted status is laid down for his people for a time. And that's true for us as well, for the people of God. We, one day we will be seen for who we truly are in Christ. For now... The world looks at us and we look less than pretty ordinary. We look unspecial. One day, all the world will see who Jesus is and who his people are. And yet we, like he, lay down that for a time. How does he lay it down? How does he relinquish his status? Well, verse 7 to 8, we see what he does. I think it's a four-step humbling Four steps down he takes. The first one is there in verse 7 and in verse 8. He takes, the very, uh, takes on human likeness. And verse 8, he's found in appearance as a man. That is, the, the creator becomes a part of the creation. He takes on flesh. 
Step one, he becomes a man. Step two, he becomes a servant, verse seven. I guess he could have been an amazing king with minions to follow him, with obvious power and status and people running after him. That was what they expected to some extent, but he doesn't, he becomes a servant. Mark 10:45. the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And how does he serve? Mark continues to give his life as a ransom for many. So he becomes a person, he becomes a servant. Thirdly, he dies, verse 8. He humbles himself, being, uh, becoming obedient to death. And more than that, fourthly, it's a cursed death. It's death on a cross. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Four steps down. Four steps of humiliation. And he's cursed by the perfect and just holy God for the sin of his people. Because he loves us. And people say it didn't hurt that much. Lots of people died on crosses. And yet the story of the Bible is not so much the pain of the cross that hurt him. It's the cost of the broken relationship with the Father. Of the punishment in our place. This perfect, intimate loving, self-giving relationship from eternity past for a time in some way broken. The agony and the despair is relational more than physical. The one person who deserves worship, what does he do? He values others above himself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's a slightly glib example for which I apologise, but I'd like you to imagine we finish church, the formal bit, and then we continue as church as we have tea and coffee, and, and the, the shutter goes up, and behind the shutter is Simon Cowell, or somebody rich and famous, somebody important, that's obviously why he wasn't on X Factor UK this last time, he's been doing tea and coffee at churches, and you say, gosh, it's you Mr. Mr. Cowell, it's lovely to see you, hello sir, and he says, ah, oh, that's fine, call me Cy, call me Cowley, can you imagine that? In fact, forget that. Don't, don't think Oxford or Magdalen Road. Go to, to Delhi. Go to India. Outside the city of Delhi, there are mounds of rubbish. People who live there called rag pickers. They are the lowest of the lowest of the low. And imagine Simon Cowell giving up his jobs in the UK, his positions on X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, the stuff in the US, the various roles that he takes on managing stars. Sells up his houses in Beverly Hills, Spain, London, and elsewhere, apparently. And he goes to live on the rubbish dumps of Delhi. And he serves the rag pickers. That's a tiny picture of what Jesus is doing here. Laying down all that he has, willingly, in love for his people. And we say, but what about me? Why does no one listen to me? Why does nobody care what I think? in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He relinquishes his status, his his rights even, and he looks to the needs of others. And yet as we finish, notice this. Notice what the Father does in verses 9 to 11. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what he does? He exalts his obedient son. Four steps down, but one big step up. He gives him the greatest title in all the universe so that all ought to acknowledge that he is the Lord. And one day everyone will see who Jesus is. And they will see that they ought to bow the knee. And they ought to shout that he is Lord. The road of humility for Jesus doesn't end in death. It it ends in glory. I take it that will be for the Christian too. As we trust him, Romans 8 verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. Like like nighttime stars who reflect the, the sun up there, one day we too will reflect the glory of our exalted king, the exalted son. Maybe you are here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I would urge you, please, to to bow the knee willingly now to King Jesus, to acknowledge him as Lord willingly now before you will have to and be made to. But if you're a Christian, I think the answer or the question for us, the question at the heart of it is, what kind of glory do you want? Maybe that's your your conversation over coffee or at the dinner table. What kind of glory do you want? Do you remember back in verse 3, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And the Greek is vain glory. Self-glory, that means we're always wanting to be at the top of the pile. We want to be noticed. We want to impress others. And yet at the end of the passage, verse 11, it's a, a far more satisfying and rewarding and worthwhile glory to the glory of God the Father. What kind of glory do you live for? What makes you tick? Is it a verse 3, exhausting, self-seeking, consuming, vain glory that's centred on you and working your way up the pile of power and prestige so people will notice us? Or is it a verse 11 glory? to glorify the God who made you for your life completely to be pointing to others to him. Pointing those that you meet through the week to him. Glorifying him. If that's you, if, if that's the kind of glory you're interested in, verse 11 type glory, then remember verse 5. Have the same mindset. As Christ Jesus.